0: i well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, as we press on in our study of the gospel of Luke, coming to a new chapter. We're going to start in verse 7. I actually dealt with verses 1 through 6 on May 24th when I preached on chapter 13, verse 10 and following. That Section of scripture back in chapter 13 spoke of a woman who was bent over and Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. And Jesus talked to the Pharisees about it, and he said the same thing that he said in chapter 14. And you'll recall that we dealt with a man with a dropsy in that in that sermon as well. So we're going to jump in to verse 7 here, and I want you to note that 14 1 tells us that Jesus was dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And then everything that occurs all the way from verse 1 down to verse 24 is happening at that dinner party. And Jesus is actually using the dinner imagery to teach those around the table and us as well some lessons about human life and humility. So let us hear what God's Word has to say. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy Inspired and inerrant word that lasts forever. Linda Creed was a famous songwriter in the 1970s. She wrote numerous R&B hits. If I listed them off, I don't have them here. But you would be familiar with a number of them if you listened to the radio back in those days and even today if you listen to any oldies station. But when she was 26 years old, in 1974, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And in 1977, in the midst of that battle with cancer, she wrote the lyrics to a song that was recorded by George Benson, and it reached number two on the R&B charts. Well, a few years later, in 1985, it was re-recorded by another singer, and it reached number one in March of 1986, and Linda Creed died a month later. Talk more about her in in a moment, but Jesus is at, is at this feast, at this dinner party, and he draws out some lessons from what he sees going on. And the first thing Jesus does is he reveals something about the human condition. and That's the first thing I want to tell you today. The human devotion to self that we see here exhibited, that Jesus points out. And then, in a few moments, I want to talk to you about the divine devotion to others. The divine devotion to others. And then I want to make a few applications after that. But first, Jesus has been here at this dinner party He's healed this man and gotten everyone upset and now he's teaching them in parables. He has seen what's going on around the dinner party and he uses that imagery to teach some things. This dinner party. The dinner party customs in Jesus' day were different than our dinner party customs. And he actually tells a story about, uh, the parable about a wedding dinner party. Now, in the first century Palestinian setting, meals were a community event, weddings as well. Some were invited to eat while others came and stood around and listened at the table at the conversation and, and even participated in the dinner conversation. The, the table would be a low U-shaped table and those dining would recline Uh, on their left elbow, on pillows arranged around the tables with their feet away from the table. And before the meal could begin, of course, the right people had to be in the right place according to their importance. It was very vital in in that culture. It was the way they did things at dinner parties and especially at weddings. Now, when we go to a wedding, usually if it's pretty formal... Uh, There's place cards if there's a dinner being served and you look for your name, you've been assigned a seat. But that's not the way it worked in Jesus' day. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to point something out. Look at verse 7. It tells us that Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now this is a dinner party where the guests are not aware of everyone who has been invited And Jesus points out how embarrassing it is to be told to move down to make room for someone more important than you. Now could you imagine if you were at a dinner party and there wasn't cards there to tell you where to sit and you picked a table out and sat at the table and then you find out you're at the family table and someone asks you to get up and leave. You'd be totally embarrassed. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. See, it would be better to be moved up, he says, Choosing the lowest place is actually wiser because you'll rise to the place of importance as people start putting people in the right place. You'll receive the appropriate honor that you deserve without being dishonored in some way. Now, Jesus is not just giving us a lesson here on dinner etiquette or wedding etiquette. This is a parable he's telling. It's a lesson about humility. This dinner scene with its seating pecking order Maybe a strange custom to us, but the human condition Jesus is addressing here is not strange at all. The Pharisees' dinner party is really a microcosm of human life, of our lives. You see, being honored and avoiding shame is a universal human desire. We want honor. We don't want to be ashamed. Of course. And it all started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Once they sinned by eating that forbidden fruit, guilt and shame have become the norm for us humans. And because we live with guilt and shame, much of our behavior is motivated by attempts to earn the praise of others and avoid their rejection. We want people to notice us, to admire us, to respect us, to think that we're great. Just think about Facebook. If you're on Facebook, you know, what you put on there, you you, want to connect with other people, maybe your friends from high school. If you think about what you put on there, you're going to put something on there so everyone can see. And you want to make sure it looks good and it's not something that's embarrassing. You don't want to put your sins up there, do you? Some people do, but they're proud of their sins. That's, what, that's the dangers of Facebook. It's all about self. It's all about self-promotion. We put our kids on there. You think, well, that's, that's good. I'm putting my, but yeah, I want my kids to look good. I want everybody to admire them. We do that in so many ways in our lives. Constantly jockeying for position, wanting to be noticed, wanting to be liked. Calvin says this It is constantly the case with men who are desirous of empty applause that they cherish envy towards each other, everyone endeavoring to draw to himself what others imagine to be due to themselves. Everybody's fighting for the acclaim, the position. But when we don't meet the standard that we're seeking to uphold, then we feel ashamed, and we don't want to feel that way. Well, this self-absorption, this self-promoting spirit that we have is so prevalent in humans that there is a theological term for it. I've mentioned it to you a couple of times in the past. And that Latin phrase is incurvatus in se. It was coined by probably Augustine of Hippo, great theologian. And that Latin phrase means turned or curved inward on oneself. This theological phrase describes a life lived inward for oneself rather than outward for God and others. And Martin Luther expounded on this in his lectures on Romans and he described this state as our nature by the corruption of the first sin so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God toward itself and enjoys them as is plain in the works righteous and hypocrites or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts but it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. And what Luther's getting at is that even when we are religious, even when we try to do the good things, we are often doing it to try to manipulate God, to get some good thing from God instead of God himself. Instead of saying, have thine own way, Lord, we want to say, Lord, do it my way. Do it my way, and then I'll do something for you. Or I've done this for you, God, so I'm expecting you to bless me in return. We want the blessing, we don't want to really have the blesser. We're self absorbed. Humans are naturally consumed with themselves and are always thinking, what's in it for me? And that's what Jesus is driving at in the second little parable that he tells to the man who had invited him. He says, you know, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. That means you can't ever invite them. He's just making a point here. Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is saying, don't just always think what's in it for me. You know, here's a picture of someone who, who only invites their, the friends that they invite so that they, those friends can invite them in return. There's something in it for them. How often do we think, you know, what's in it for me? What, why should I do this or why should I do that? We have a lot of uh, homeless people around us. And often they come to the church, and I deal with them on occasion, and uh, have done along the, you know, pastors do that sort of thing. And it's easy to become callous and jaded and hard-hearted towards those folks. It's easy to turn them away and say no, and and to think. And i thought this, you know. Why should I give anything to this person? They're just using the church. They're not, they're not here. They're not interested in coming to church. They're not interested in contributing to the church. They're not interested in anything but some money. So why should I do that? Well, that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's one example. We shouldn't do it just because they can do something for us. We should do it because we remember the poor and those who are hurting. Self-absorption, self-centeredness, self-interest, self, self, self. We're eaten up with it. And our culture has doubled down on it. We've got this, this movement that started really in the late 60s, early 70s, and has impacted us, the self-esteem movement. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. I read an article in Psychology Today. and Now, this guy was critical of it and he gives us a little bit of the history of it. But there's an error in what he's saying. Here's what he said. The self-esteem movement has done an entire generation a deep disservice. It started with the best intentions. In 1969, Nathaniel Brandon wrote a paper entitled The Psychology of Self-Esteem that suggested that feelings of self-esteem were the key to success in life. Hearing this, many people started to find ways to confer confidence upon our children. This resulted in competition where everyone gets a trophy and no one actually wins. New games attempted to engage children without any winners or losers. The parents who embraced these efforts did so out of love and with the most noble of intentions. The only problem is that these efforts simply do not work. Self-esteem is not something conferred It is earned through taking risks and developing skills. When children stretch themselves, they expand their sense of their own capability and then feel confident to tackle the next challenge. Confidence comes from competence. We do not bestow it as a gift. He says some good things there, but there's something wrong with what he's saying because he is still holding on to the assumption that self-esteem is the goal. Self esteem is not the goal. He's just saying that everyone's been going about it the wrong way, and there needs to be a different way to get people to have self esteem. Self esteem is not the highest end. Well, back to Linda Cree that I mentioned at the very beginning. As I said, she was a famous songwriter. She's actually in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And that song that she wrote that was initially recorded by George Benson went to number two and then was re-recorded and went to number one was, was sung by Whitney Houston. And it was written, as I mentioned, in the middle of her coping with her breast cancer. And the words to that song describe her feelings about coping with great challenges that one must face in life being strong during those challenges, whether you succeed or fail, and passing that strength on to children to carry with them into their adult lives. Of course, the song is The Greatest Love of All, and the lyrics reflect the lies we humans love to believe. And it's sad to know that she wrote these words in the midst of her life-and-death battle with cancer. Just listen to the emptiness Of her beliefs. I believe that children are our future. That's true. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Well, that's part of the problem. We're led by our children, and and adults have taken a back seat. She goes on, show them all the beauty they possess inside. I don't think she believes in original sin. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone who fulfills my needs. That's just sad. In the midst of her life and death battle. And she admits it. A lonely place to be. And so I learned to depend on me. I mean, in the middle of your mortality, she's doubling down on herself. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Dignity is not the highest end of this life. And here's the chorus. chorus, Because the greatest love of all is happening to me, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And that's a lie right straight from the pit of hell. What did Jesus say was the greatest love of all? The greatest love, Jesus says, is that someone laid down his life for his friends the exact opposite of what Ms. Creed says. Life is difficult. Life is hard. And as I prayed, we have all kinds of suffering and problems around us in this broken, sinful world in which we live. Turning to ourselves and our own self-sufficiency is pointless and futile and feeds the problems that we have. We need humility. We need... What is humility? Let me just say that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. It's not thinking you're poor, pitiful me. It's not being down in the mouth about yourself. No, it's not thinking about yourself at all. And thinking about others. That's what humility is. Even people who hate themselves, they hate themselves because they're, they've looked inside, they see what's there, they don't like what they see, and it is eating them up. They hate themselves because they're consumed with themselves. The best advice I think you could give someone who is loathing themselves is to stop thinking about yourself and think about God and think about others. Turn your eyes away from yourself and you need to find someone to cleanse you and renew you. Yes, Jesus. And you need to start looking at others, serving others. What would our world look like if we could actually live as Jesus says here? What if we put other people's interests ahead of our own? And and what if we gave without expecting something in return? Look around us at the current situation. You know, we have racial problems in our nation. What if several hundred years ago, those men who kidnapped the slaves thought, you know, this is another human being, and I'm going to put that person's interests and needs above my own? Or, or what about uh, the slave owners? What if they said, let's put the interests of other human beings ahead of our own? What if we looked out for these people more than we looked out for our own interests? We could go on. What about the Jim Crow laws that were passed? All that would, have, would be a non-issue today if we could actually turn our eyes off our own interests and our own selfish ways and think about others. Problem is, I mean, we've had the Bible for 2,000 years and yet we still see all these things in our world because we can't do it on our own. We can't do it in our own power. We can't turn inside and say, you know what, I just need to be more thoughtful to others. We don't need just some self-improvement we need transformation from outside of ourselves and that's what jesus came to accomplish see jesus was the perfect human you know we always talk about practicing what you preach well jesus did he did practice what he preached and he did it so that we could be saved he he lived a perfect life he Perfectly loved God, his Father. He perfectly loved everybody. And he did it because he was perfect, but he also did it as a substitute. He did it to fulfill all righteousness. And, of course, he laid down his life for us because he cared so much for us. He wasn't interested in preserving his own life. He was interested in saving it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross the joy of saving others and he died on the cross paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and he rose from the dead for our justification see we need christ to transform us into what he would have us to be he exhibited these these perfect unselfish traits for us. And only as He comes into our lives and begins to transform us, what's He going to transform us into? He's going to transform us into His own image. We're going to bear that family resemblance as children of God, to be like Christ, unselfish. That's the only way that we can do it. Philippians 2 tells us what Jesus did, everything that He's talking about. Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, there was no one higher than Jesus, and he humbled himself a a great distance for sinful, self-centered people like you and me. And, And if Jesus can do that, well, it's not that far for us. We're already pretty low. Jesus can transform us. He's got the power. The power that rose Him him up from the grave is at work in His people. Jesus reached out to others just like He's saying. He humbled Himself. He didn't take the place of honor, the honor that He deserved to be at the head of the table. And he always thought about others. You know, he was always reaching out to those who were blind and lame and poor. Sinners who were rejected by society. And at his great banquet, he's inviting everybody. And still there is room, it says. Room for selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-serving people like you and me to be changed, to be transformed. Let me back up a few verses in Philippians 2 that I just read to you because Paul is talking about us. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See what he's saying there? If you have been encouraged by Christ... If you have gotten comfort from His great love, if you have been washed and cleansed and renewed, filled with the Spirit, Paul's saying, look, then be like Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So today, this passage calls us to, to trust in the Lord. We we need to take a look at ourselves, yes. See what we're like inside. That's what I've tried to do. Help us see that we are naturally self-centered, selfish. We can even pursue God in a way that's self-seeking. But as we look at ourselves and see our sinfulness and need for transformation, look to the Lord. Put your trust in Him. Let Him exalt you when it is the right time for the right reasons. That's what He's calling us to. James says it. He gives more grace. We need grace. We need... God to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In, in his time. And he will repay you for all the service that you give to him and to others at the resurrection of the just. And that's the payment you want. Those Pharisees that made a big deal about all their religious things, Jesus said, Well, those people who do it out in public for public praise, they've received their reward. They got their reward. It's over. But we serve the Lord. Now, if we've come to the Lord and we've gotten acceptance from Him and cleansing and forgiveness and renewal, then we just need to ask how can I live for this one who's done everything for me? Serve others. Stop thinking about yourself so much and think about others' interests. Put other people first and their needs first. And especially, put God first. Really sing to him, have your own way, God, with me, do what you would have your, what you would want what you want to do with me. let's pray together, Lord, we come to you and we pray that we would that everyone here would know what it is to be accepted by you lord we we know we're sinful, we know we love ourselves and we want to do what we want to do and we want to we want the way things to be the way that we want them to be and we don't care about others as much as we should and we often use you to try to get things we want lord forgive us we pray that we would know your forgiveness and cleansing and we pray that you would transform us and, and that you would change us we we come to you humbly and we ask, Lord, that you would mold and shape us into the image of Christ and that we can make a great impact in, in this world, Lord, for your glory. Not for our own glory, but for your glory. We pray, Lord, that we would live for your glory and for the good of our fellow man. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.